Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It's, Jesus, it's September 9th. <laughs> you know, I, I always say 4th of July flies by, and then summer flies by. Well, Labor Day flies by, and next thing you know, it's Halloween. By the way, I did get Halloween decorations for my desk already. Thinking about putting some in my room. I'm just kind of down to skip September and get to October. But then again, that would mean a lot of lost time. So I don't know, I'm conflicted. But anyways, it's Saturday. It's hot again. I'm a little tired today, but rallying through podcast time. Um, I'm going to start with, I, I don't like these stories. I don't like this news. I don't like talking about it, but I feel like I kind of need to. So there was a really bad earthquake that happened Friday night. It happened in one of my favorite countries in the world, Morocco. The epicenter was high in the Atlas Mountains. From my understanding, about 45 miles southwest of Marrakesh, which, by the way, I've been to twice, probably one of my favorite cities in the world. Great people, great food, so much history, beautiful city. I'll never forget when I was um, studying abroad in Spain in 26, yes, 2016, a buddy and I just winged it and did a trip, took the Marrakesh Express, got down there, met some French travelers, a Dutch traveler, and we all just got together and ended up renting a van and going out into the Sahara Desert and blah, blah, blah. But it was one of those really memorable trips, moments in my life, and I just remember Marrakesh being awesome. But unfortunately, this was a like a... 6.8 earthquake happened Friday night in Morocco, and at this time, 2,000 people have already died, according to state media, state TV, I guess, and this is like the deadliest earthquake to have hit the area in decades. I've even heard centuries, and I'll get into it in a minute, but even though parts of Marrakesh were quite severely damaged... This actually happened in the Atlas Mountains in very rural, isolated areas, so not not good. 2,000 now, unfortunately, I would imagine there will be many more. And the, the sad, I mean, there's a lot of sad parts of this, but one of, the, one of the more depressing parts of it, other than all the death, is that Marrakesh's Medina, which is kind of like its old town, the city walls, they were hit heavily with a lot of damage, and you have century-old structures that were just unable to withstand what happened. And I think CNN brings up a good point, though, because while Marrakesh, obviously tourist-heavy spot, a lot of focus is on Marrakesh just because a lot of people travel there, it's a big hub, beautiful city. I think we have to remember that the actual Atlas Mountains, about you know 70 kilometers, 45 miles away, worse spots hit, I think it's going to be hard to get aid in there get help in there. And that's another kind of depressing part of this. And CNN notes here in quotes, eyewitnesses near the high Atlas Mountains say there is destruction everywhere. It was the strongest quake to hit within 500 kilometers of the area in more than a century. And that's according to the U.S. Geological Survey. You know, when I was, when I was in Morocco, we took a, we took a bus actually kind of at the foothills of the Atlas Mountains and drove through some villages kind of at the bottom of the Atlas Mountains. And I just remember how isolated, rural these areas were, lacking a lot of infrastructure, water. So I can't imagine how difficult it's going to be to get supplies up there, how difficult it's going to be to bring help up there. Yeah, obviously Marrakesh, big city. They are using sports arenas and the city center to house people and provide aid. 
It's going to be a lot harder to do in some of these rural villages. So tragic, very tragic. Now we are seeing a lot of international focus so far. I'm not going to get into the world leaders sending out condolences because, you know, condolences are nice on paper, but they don't actually do anything. But I am actually heartened to see the support that is coming out so far. A good article talks about how France has activated a fund, and this is kind of interesting. It's going to allow local governments throughout the country, doesn't matter what their size is, to make financial contributions for aid. Israel's emergency services have geared up to mobilize in Morocco. The United Arab Emirates are establishing an air bridge, in quotes, to deliver supplies. And this is actually a really interesting one. Algeria actually reopened its airspace for humanitarian aid and medical flights. And they'd actually previously cut off diplomatic ties with Morocco. So, I mean, that's pretty big. I guess sometimes it does take a really tough situation to maybe change how you look at your neighbors. So... That is promising. Turkey says it's ready to send about 265 personnel, 1,000 tents to Morocco to support aid. That's according to the AFAD, Turkey's Emergency Management Authority. So not enough, but promising that there is, there is a movement of countries rallying to help. We'll have to keep watching this, but I did just want to start with that because it's tragic. Again, this is just not a part of the world or a part of Morocco with great infrastructure and also just building wise it's a lot of old buildings that obviously do not hold up well during a almost seven magnitude earthquake so this just seems kind of eerily similar i mean maybe not completely but eerily similar to that one that happened in syria and turkey kind of the beginning months of 2023 also tragic so hopefully we can get aid and support out there as soon as possible Moving on, this story has been going on for a few days now, I guess even closer to a week now, and it involves Elon Musk, the man who, in my opinion, and the opinions of a lot of others, has just tanked Twitter, or X. X has become just a chaotic cesspool of misinformation, disinformation, and extremism. I still have the, uh, the app. I used to get recommended to see people that I actually could agree with, that I enjoyed reading their content, and now my feed is full of Tucker Carlson, people like Nick Fuentes, Marjorie Taylor Greene, all the people that I was kind of okay with not seeing much of. And honestly, X to me looks more like Truth Social than Twitter. Like, Elon has managed to make it a more successful better designed version of Truth Social. And that's not great. Twitter, luckily, or X, whatever you fucking want to call it, it still has the best infrastructure of these apps. It's better than Threads and Truth Social. So, of course, people like myself and lots of others still use it. But it's, it's going downhill quickly. And over the past few days, we have seen the Anti-Defamation League get attacked by everyone from the far right to Elon Musk to white nationalists, mainly because the Anti-Defamation League has kind of come out and said, hey, like there's a lot of anti-Semitism on here. We want to bring awareness to this. We would like to raise questions about this. And there's a lot of anti-Semitic conspiracies floating around right now. And just so people know, what the Anti-Defamation League basically does 
is while it defends the First Amendment, it does identify businesses, organizations, individuals that are spewing violence against others and creating toxicity against specific groups that may hurt democracy and hurt open societies. It's kind of that idea of being tolerant towards the intolerant. Of Some would say you should be always tolerant to the intolerant, but others would say, well, if you just let intolerance fester and flourish, then usually it can actually lead to a society that is very dangerous and very corrupted and very morally unacceptable, in my opinion. And that's always kind of the contradiction of free speech here. But yeah, the ADL, Anti-Defamation League, it recognizes the First Amendment, but it also brings awareness and sometimes lawsuits to organizations that it deems putting out issues involving extremism, hate, anti-Semitism, all that stuff. It is, from my understanding, it's the oldest anti-hate organization in the United States. And yeah, it's, it's mainly focused on protecting the Jewish community, but it also works towards others as well. But anyways... The Atlantic has a good article. I'll just read the first little part of this. It says here in quotes, um, article, by the way, is by Yair Rosenberg, great writer for The Atlantic. Um, but he writes here in quotes, over the last few days, hundreds of thousands of posts on X, the platform no, uh, formerly known as Twitter, have lambasted a Jewish organization that many people are only vaguely aware of, the Anti-Defamation League. The hashtag ban the ADL campaign, started by overt white nationalists and later boosted by Elon Musk himself, accuses the Jewish civil rights group of seeking to censor the site's users, intimidate its advertisers, and generally abrogate American freedoms in service of a sinister liberal agenda. Everything I've seen, so basically there's a lot of blame that groups like the ADL, a Jewish organization by the way, are responsible for trying to censor Twitter, bring a woke liberal agenda to it, and this is why Twitter is tanking, losing advertisers, the platform is struggling, all of that fun stuff. And we have to remember that throughout history, anti-Semitism usually bears its ugly head as a conspiracy, usually during divisive times that the Jewish community is conspiring to control media, they're the ones corrupting society, they have all the money and power, and all of the economic woes, societal woes, can be blamed on these shadowy Jewish figures that are controlling everything. And that can lead to a lot of dangerous actions, rhetoric, politics, as we've seen throughout the 20th century, and still in some places see happen less frequently, but happen today. And so I was fairly disappointed when Elon Musk, of course, took another dose of his red pill and kind of doubled down on... Blaming the ADL for <laughs> censoring the site's users, intimidating its advertisers, and just ruining American freedoms. I don't know about you guys, but when Musk came on and purchased Twitter and, you know, taking it down this right-wing rabbit hole, he's the one who's made the decisions to bring back on people that had been previously banned on Twitter. There's a lot more trolls than there were previously. It's not really an enjoyable environment to be on anymore. I feel like some of his actions is what's intimidated advertisers, not the ADL. Yair Rosenberg writes in this Atlantic article in quotes, the ADL is being scapegoated on Twitter for the platform's own failings and attacked as a stand-in for supposed Jewish power. And it's, 
I think generally what we're seeing here is a big contrast or conflict, I guess you could say, between Musk, who has just opened up the floodgates of free speech on Twitter, which has created a pretty toxic app and platform. And that's between him and the ADL that is worried that this is just spewing more disinformation and dangerous conspiracies. And we're seeing this just happen. But of course, Musk, who is just spiraling downwards, he's just buying into all this and tweeting and being this contrarian. And I don't know if he's an anti-Semite. Honestly, we can pick that apart both ways. I think there's arguments in both ways. But to me, that part doesn't particularly matter. Because I don't think to him it even matters about the actual value structure or anything. He's just going along and fanning the flames and enjoying all of this. And he's kind of adopted a lot of the Tucker Carlson, Trumpy type of vibes. And it's not great. And I think the ADL is in kind of a unique place because right-wing supporters of Israel and just the right-wing in general, and I'm talking about the more traditional right-wing, they've accused the ADL time and time again of trying to fight against free speech trying to protect woke ideologies, and it's becoming too culturally progressive. But then you have people on the left argue that the ADL is always defending Israel from criticism because they call it anti-Semitic. And so the ADL is always in a tough place here. But I I would argue that (laughs) it is true that the ADL, for example, lobbies social media platforms to, I guess you could say, police hate speech as it deems fit. But the thing is, there's also like numerous other ones. I always think of the Southern Poverty Law Center, just to name one, which I think is much worse off. But I guess the difference here, at least in this situation, is it does seem like the far right is more focused on the ADL for for reasons that this group is Jewish. I, I do truly believe that that is an issue here. Now, I read another interesting article that actually was a conversation with Jonathan Greenblatt. He's the director of the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. And I thought he brought up an interesting point about why you do have to worry about what people are saying. And again, you guys know, I am close to a free speech absolutist, but I also am not totally there because I think creating a society of hate and intolerance without at least trying to limit some of the platforming and just megaphone of, of the hate. I think it's important. Anyways, he says here in quotes, we are focused on the broad intersection of technology and society. Why? Because increasingly the line between online and the offline has blurred. So many of us lead lives that are digital as they are analog, whether it's online gaming or e-commerce platforms or messaging apps or social media services. He says the latter are a particular concern because social media is a super spreader of anti-Semitism and, and hate. But then interestingly, guys, Greenblatt goes on, though, to say that this issue has obviously preceded Elon Musk. This is nothing particularly new. But I think the difference here is that Twitter in the past, maybe sometimes heavy-handedly and too far, was trying to at least moderate some of the hate. And now Elon Musk, of course, in the pendulum shift we have seen, has gone a little bit too far in the other direction. And I I do think that's what's happening here, is we went from Twitter being a little bit maybe too moderated and a little bit too progressive and a little bit too lacking of free speech to now Musk just letting the floodgates. And I think we need to find some middle ground, and we haven't found it. Twitter's just become the battleground. And, you know, I I do worry that we are seeing a growth in anti-Semitism, and it's not 
all blatant anti-Semitism. It's not like Charlottesville, the Jews will not replace us type of stuff. But it's everyone from Tucker Carlson to like Joe Rogan to RFK Jr. all talking about George Soros, who is obviously a rich Jewish man who they claim is influencing left-wing politics. That There's always conspiracies like that throughout history. You also then have people like Nick Fuentes, who's atrocious, being mainstreamed. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene has been at events, Unite the Right, some of these other ones. Trump is having dinner with Nick Fuentes. Then you also have conspiracies about how Putin is trying to liberate Ukraine from Nazis. I just feel like there's just so many moving pieces that are conspiratorial in nature. And then you also are now talking about the ADL is what's ruining Twitter. I think it's dangerous. And we need to tread lightly here because, or carefully, I guess would be a better way to put it, is because we don't want to limit free speech. I usually defend controversial speech. But we also don't want these ideas to just keep gaining strength and traction. And we do need to find a way to recognize that there are dangerous people out there that are peddling very dangerous ideas. I feel like Elon is the one that I'm just more kind of surprised about because he he's always been kind of loony, a little quirky, but he was more controlled, measured, and more intelligent. Like he was willing to embrace the intelligent side more than the crazy side. But now it seems like he's like 20% innovative and like 80% batshit crazy, whereas maybe he used to be like 80% creative genius and 20% batshit crazy. And now he's just lost it. And it's just interesting to see, because him and Tucker Carlson, to me, in a weird way, have a somewhat similar trajectory. And there's a sadness to that, because I read read Tucker Carlson's analysis of George W. Bush, I want to say in 1999, before he was elected president, really well read, really well written, very good points. And Tucker used to be a good journalist. Elon Musk also used to be very innovative, a little less in the spotlight, and now both just crave controversy. It's like they're just going further and further into dangerous controversy, too, and I guess it's just kind of shame on Elon Musk, you know? He wanted to make Twitter a beacon of free speech again, get rid of all the regulations, and instead, I think he's really just made it a toxic shithole. And I'm not even going to really talk about the Tucker Carlson interview with What's his name? Uh, Larry Sinclair, the guy who claims to have done crack and had sex with Barack Obama. I mean, how the mighty have fallen. I mean, this is like the new version of the birther conspiracy from the Trump era or the 2008s, right? But you know it's even getting crazy when Elon Musk actually questioned Tucker's interview with Larry Sinclair and he said it wasn't very convincing. But I wonder if there's a sadness to someone like Tucker Carlson where like, He used to be this big-name guy who went to all the big parties and was invited to conservative dinners, and he was one of the top guys on Fox and blah, blah, blah. And now he's having Larry Sinclair, who failed a polygraph test, said he couldn't go to court for fraud because he was dying of a terminal illness. That was like 10 years ago. This guy now claims to have had sex with Obama for crack. That's an interesting uh, change of interviews and careers where you're interviewing a literally con artist with a just track record of lying. I'd like to see a round table maybe between, I don't know, Hunter Biden, Elon Musk, Tucker Carlson, Larry Sinclair, meeting of the minds or something like that. But it's just interesting to see some of these figures and how 
the last several years has really just changed their trajectories. Because if you told me in 2012 or 2013, Tucker or or Elon, I guess, would be in the places they are, I'd say, hell no, you're full of shit. Moving on, I finally want to get to the 14th Amendment, Section 3 specifically, which is called the Disqualification from Holding Office. And I've seen a lot of buzz. I actually wrote this down a few weeks ago when I was listening to a legal podcast and they brought it up. And then I wanted to react, but then everyone's been talking about it. And a lot of people on the left specifically, and some never Trumpers on the right, think that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment could be used to make sure Trump cannot be reelected. And I think it's a false hope. It's a farce. And even if it did work, it could be a Pyrrhic victory at best. So I'm going to read the uh, Section 3, 14th Amendment here. It says here in quotes, No person, person, excuse I can't speak, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president or vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or any executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Basically, this is saying that if you formally held office and then tried to do an insurrection or rebellion against the same place you swore an oath to, then you can't run again. So basically what they're saying here is that Donald Trump was already president of the United States. He swore an oath to protect the United States, to support the Constitution, and blah, blah, blah. And then he engaged in an insurrection. So now he's disqualified from office. And it's important to note historically, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment ratified after the Civil War in 1868. And it was mainly, I I would argue, it was mainly created to deal with people involved in the Confederacy it was kind of of a re, it was kind of a reconstruction era clause aimed to prevent those who held roles in the confederacy from becoming a member of congress or of any other elected offices so it's interesting for sure and basically what's happening the hill has a good piece on this it writes here several experts lawmakers and activists are putting forward a legal argument that former president trump could be disqualified from the 2024 ballot under the 14th Amendment for his alleged actions in connection to January 6th and its attack on the Capitol. From from my understanding, proponents of this argument, and there's a good amount of them more or less, they say he's disqualified or could be disqualified from serving as president again because he took a lot of actions that could be deemed insurrection. I, I wouldn't say rebellion, but definitely insurrection. And... Interestingly, some of those in favor have pointed to, what I mean is some of those in favor of using this amendment to take Trump off of state ballots, point to a New Mexico official who was ordered to be removed from office last year after his participation in the January 6th attacks. The Hill writes here in quotes, New Mexico District Court Judge Francis Matthew said Cowboys for Trump founder Cooey Griffin's decision to join the mob on January 6th and trespass on restricted grounds constituted insurrection and disqualified him from holding federal or state office. 
We've also found that Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, Crew, a Washington-based watchdog, said it was the first time since 1869 that a court disqualified an elected official over the insurrection rule. I will say, to be devil's advocate here, not even devil's advocate because I'm not really for using this, but Trump is innocent until proven guilty. I know that's not popular to say, but I think we need to remember that sometimes. The investigations, the indictments, the trials, it's all going on. But right now, it is too early to go down that road. We also need to remember that this guy, Coy Griffin, he was there on January 6th, and it looks like he was actually prosecuted and tried for it. So right now, I don't know if it's great standing to go down that road right now. Now, Crew also filed a lawsuit Wednesday and they're actually going for it already, aiming to block Trump from the 2024 ballot in Colorado. Again, The Hill writes, the group alleged Trump violated the oath by recruiting, inciting, and encouraging a violent mob that attacked the Capitol on January 6th. Interestingly, too, in Florida, a lawyer has also filed a challenge to this. Also, some of my least favorite Democrats are supporting this as well. We have Senator Tim Kaine, Hillary's running mate in 2016, Adam Schiff, who I, I think he was a little bit too much the boy who cried wolf during the Russia stuff, and now it's hard for me to always take him seriously. But these two are kind of leading in the House and Senate, saying that the 14th Amendment may disqualify Trump. Interestingly, Asa Hutchinson, or as Trump calls him, Ada Hutchinson, has also said the president's um, actions did violate the amendment, or could have violated the amendment. <sighs> um. Let me take a deep breath here and think. So, again, Trump has not been found guilty yet. So, if I don't like them trying to do this already. Because what this tells the electorate and the Trump base is that even before he's been found guilty, they're already trying to disqualify him and they've already assumed him to be guilty. Like it or not, I don't think that's how this system should work. I don't think that's how we should approach this case. I think it's pretty reckless, to be completely honest. I'm a little bit worried that we are trying to find legal solutions to a political problem. And I am just convinced, I mean, Trump's been a criminal his whole life, right? He's played the laws his entire life. The guy doesn't understand our legal system, or maybe he actually does understand our legal system. But he's a political problem. He was elected by the people, or enough people, based on the system we have, and he's not going away. We keep finding that he keeps coming back and his popularity is there. Ask Ron DeSantis. Ask Nikki Haley. They are doing horribly in the polling compared to Trump. Clearly, there's still a demand for Trump. So before he's found guilty to just try to take him off state ballots, I think it backfires. I think it really backfires. And I think there's a reason why this amendment has not been used really since the Civil War, because it's a very slippery slope, and it's really not something you want to delve into. Like I said, Trump is a political problem, and he must be solved through our political system. He's a fever, whatever you want to call him. We have to let the fever break. Maybe it gets worse. Again, I'm not saying there's a remedy for this right now. But trying to use new legal theories is just going to inflame things and make it worse, and it might backfire.
Again, I think Asa Hutchinson is probably right. Adam Schiff on this one is probably right that Trump's actions, alleged actions, again, is a keyword, did violate this amendment. But this to me seems weak. The Democrats, never Trumpers, whoever else does not want Trump to be president again, need to fight and make their case, not just rely on these obscure legal theories. Because I can already just see, hear, smell the new conspiracies coming out of this. And I can just see this making things even more divided, more catastrophic for our democracy if we go down this road. I'm sure some people will push back and tell me, dude, we, we have to hold him accountable. The Constitution says this. I get it. But I just don't think this is the way to go. I really don't. Now, you know, to point fingers again here, if Merrick Garland had have appointed a special counsel much earlier on instead of waiting, and maybe we were much further along in this, or Trump was already found guilty for something involving January 6th, he was actually found guilty, I would say yes. But alleged crimes, trials starting up, our system of innocent until proven guilty, you just can't do this. You just can't do this, I'm sorry. All right, before we're out of here, I just wanted to touch on one more thing. And it's about kind of the state of climate activism and why I think climate activists maybe need to redefine how redefine their approach, find a new tactic. Last week I talked about, yeah, was it last week? Yeah, time's been <laughs> chaos, but last week I talked about, you know, on the way to Burning Man, climate activists blocked literally the only highway out to Burning Man. And newsflash, people use the road other than going to Burning Man. So you had commuters, trucks, people trying to get to work, people that had paid a lot to go to Burning Man, lots of different people stuck out on this road in the middle of nowhere. It's hot. There's not a lot of gas stations, not a lot of places to get food or water. People are stuck out there. It's actually kind of a health hazard blocking the only road. What if you run out of gas? What if someone needs water? Obviously, this didn't happen, but... You eventually had tribal authorities literally drive a car through it. People are chained to their cars in the road, and they just drove right through it to clear the road, and it was chaos. But it made me just really think about how climate change is super important. It's happening. It's scary how things are truly escalating. Seems like all the stuff they talked about when we were kids truly is happening now. I've seen a stark change, blah, blah, blah. But chaining yourself to a car, to block a road, to create a health hazard, and also just inconvenience people maybe trying to get to work, that's a nuisance. It's not making an impact. And getting in the way to disrupt average Americans' like day-to-day lives when they're just trying to get to work, maybe try to just go to a festival to have a little fun. Either way, it's, it's in my opinion, just going to polarize people in the opposite direction, make them laugh at you, and maybe make them just go, I don't want to be a part of this. It's, it's this extremism that just doesn't work to me. And then I was watching Coco Goff's um, U.S. Open semifinal victory over Kalina Muchko- Muchova. Sorry, I always... Mukova, Mukova. And it was delayed by like 50 minutes, close to an hour, because of a disruption by four environmental activists in the Arthur Ashe Stadium. And one protester glued his bare feet to the concrete floor and... If you guys have ever followed tennis or been to a tennis match, 
you sit and stand, you have to be quiet, all this shit. And this guy was glued to the floor, and they delayed the match. And there's great pictures of people screaming at him, getting really angry, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know, it was Michael Moynihan on the Fifth Column podcast who I think said it best. He was like, yeah, I was a climate denier, and then I saw this loser glue his feet to the ground during the tennis match, and that really just made me aware of climate change and totally changed my mind. What it did was it just made a lot of people who wanted to watch tennis, in my opinion, now furious at the climate activists, and that was on, you know, live TV, big tennis match. A lot of people are just going to see the negative side. A lot of people are just going to be angry about that. I don't think that's how you convince people to do more. And from my understanding, these four environmental activists were part of a group, Extinction Rebellion. And interestingly enough, the group, actually earlier in the year, there's a good Guardian article on how they're trying to kind of shift their tactics from gluing themselves in public places, smashing windows, to do something excuse me, to do something a little more welcoming. The Guardian writes here in quotes, a New Year resolution was formed to, in quotes, prioritize attendance over arrest and relationships over roadblocks. And it was spelled out in a 1st of January statement titled, We Quit. And it was basically talking about constantly evolving tactics. And, you know, there's other environmental groups. They throw paint on notably famous pieces of art, on art masterpieces. And... I guess the thing here is, recent years, you've just seen a small group of protesters, and they just cause a disproportionate impact on hardworking people, just trying to go about their everyday lives. And it's it incenses, and at times, can put people's lives at risk, and that's not a winning argument. It's not a winning way to convince people that they need to do more. You know, maybe some of their messaging is good, what they're trying to accomplish is good, But if you're trying to bring more people on board and you're blocking traffic, ruining sports, and just causing literal chaos at times, it's a hard way to get more people on board. Yeah, I'm sorry I said it, but that's just how I feel. And I I think a lot of people, especially probably the ones watching the U.S. Open, I mean, I feel like you're probably pretty aware something's going on. Do you need a guy to literally do an hour delay after work when you're at home just trying to unwind, watch the game? Do you really think he's bringing awareness to it? No, he's just pissing people off. And again, I believe climate change is a serious threat, one probably one of the most important and serious threats to our future. These people just need better tactics, full stop. Anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube. You guys know the rest. I'm out of here. It's Saturday. I'm going to go unwind. I'm a little bit tired. been a busy week. So take care. Enjoy your weekend. NFL starts tomorrow. Go Pack Go. Hopefully we beat the Bears. Alex out. Adios.